Well, good morning, everybody. If you got your Bibles, please go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And while you're finding that, let me just ask you this question. How many of you remember TV before there was this thing called reality TV? Okay, a lot of us do. Okay, we'll have to remember. Is it just me or does it seem like at least half the shows on TV anymore are quote-unquote reality TVs, shows? You know, I, I sat down while I was working this sermon. I tried to write out all the, the shows that I could think of off the top of my head um, that would be like reality TV. So I, I, I listed like Survivor, um, uh, uh, The Voice, uh, The Bachelor. Oh, man, not a fan, not a fan. Dancing with the Stars. Deadliest Catch, American Pickers, Overhauling, Big Brother. Anybody watch Big Brother in here? Any super fans? I'm one right here. Big Brother super fan. You probably didn't know that, but I am. Um, the Real World, uh, The Amazing Race, Real Housewives, meh. Um, Pawn Stars, House Hunters, Duck Dynasty. Anybody watch that? The Apprentice, Extreme Home Makeover. Remember that one? Move that bus. You know, what a great show. But before reality TV took the world by storm a number of years ago, there was this one show, and it debuted back in 1984, and it kind of was a precursor to what would be modern-day reality TV. Do you have any idea what I might be thinking about? It was called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robert. You guys remember that one? Have you guys watched that? Oh, man, this show. I mean, I remember as a kid, this show was on when I was a kid, and people would talk about this show because like for the first time ever, like normal people were exposed to a whole other side of the way some people live their lives. It was full on luxury. It was materialism on full display. Real people showing off real extravagance of their lifestyles. And of course, how it was portrayed was there's absolutely no downside whatsoever, you know, to this way of life. They never showed you any of the behind the scenes stuff, uh, but no, life was perfect. That's how they portrayed this. Well, nowadays, doesn't it seem like shows like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, aren't they kind of like a dime a dozen? I mean, there's shows like this, not even just on TV, but um, all you have to do is have an Instagram account and a smartphone and you have access to millions of other people, many of whom are like these, these really famous celebrities and their extravagant lifestyles or these uber-rich athletes. You can literally follow and look at the lives of just about anybody you want. I, I don't know about you, but I am blown away by what people put on social media. Are you? I mean, I like how some people just put themselves out there and, and just broadcast their lives, and we see that all the time. Several years ago, there was an Instagram account started called Rich Kids of Instagram. Have you ever heard of this one? A couple years ago, it was changed, the name was changed to Rich Kids of the Internet. And I mean, good grief. It is a continuous photo stream of how these, what I would just say, how these uber-rich, greedy, self-indulged, at least that's the impression I get, of how they live their lives. And it's a constant photo stream of private jets and expensive clothes and luxury cars and yachts and exotic beach vacations. Again, this is materialism on full display. This year, Kylie Jenner, many of you are familiar with that name, she's the younger sister of like Kim Kardashian, that whole Kardashian fame. She became this year the youngest ever self-made billionaire. She's 21. She's a billionaire. 
Her Instagram account has nearly 150 million followers. Here's one of her recent posts right here. She's sitting on a private jet with her mom. And now to give you some perspective, 150 million. Okay, so like the population of the United States is a little over 300 million. So a little less than the half of the population of the United States, that's who follows her um, around the world. And so what that means is that, uh, that she can post a picture like this one on her private jet and um, she can post it anytime she wants and instantly about 150 million people have instant access to that moment of her life and they can keep up with her. Many of these followers are teenagers and young adults and they can keep up with her every move dreaming about how great it must be to have her life and how awesome it would be to jet set around the world and do anything she wants to do and have anything that she wants to have and many people look at that and they can watch it right through their smartphone and go, man, that would be, be awesome. Now, don't get me wrong, I love technology. So do many of you. I like social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I love what technology and social media offers the church and the opportunities it, has, it gives us to, to advance the gospel and put it in many people's hands all, all at once. In fact, we're live streaming this service right now on Facebook. Say hi to everybody watching us on our app and on Facebook. You should be in church, but we're glad we're, you're watching anyway. I'm joking, I'm joking. There's people that watch us from all over the world and we're glad you're tuning in today. But I love the technology that this stuff provides for. I love the opportunities. But there is a flip side. There is a danger to massive amounts of exposure. And I don't think any of you would disagree with me at all. But if we are not careful, there is this temptation to believe or to feel that where we are at in life right now just isn't good enough. That's what all this exposure does. Like, you know, it's like, man, I just need a little nicer house, I need a little better car, a little larger income, a little nicer vacation, a little better boat, a little bit more in the retirement account, and then on and on and on. It's like, you know, if I had her life, if I had his friends, if I had their lifestyle, you know, life would be better if I could just go where she goes and if I could just have what he has. Now, we wouldn't say this out loud, of course, but internally, maybe there's a little bit of thinking there. We look at some people and we go, man, if only, oh, if only, if only, if only, oh, if only. We have these examples everywhere. And it constantly tempts us to believe that we have somehow not yet arrived or that somehow we are behind where we should be. Impossible comparisons all around us telling you every single day, every time your device, your TV is on, that you don't have enough, you're not good enough, and you need all of these things to be happy. And the result is this. There has become a reality in our culture. And the reality is around this word contentment or being a content person. Um, maybe you could say somebody who is satisfied, somebody who is fulfilled in life. I'm telling you, the reality is contentment is becoming an ever-elusive achievement today. It really is. Seems like just observation. Seems like people are less and less content. And we wonder, why is that? Could it be that we are bombarded with images and descriptions of people who have all the things that we dream of having? I don't know, but I think there's part of it. Just people just don't do contentment well. It's a real struggle. 
I want you to listen to something that Paul wrote to Timothy in our final chapter of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Listen to what Paul said to him. He said, Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, what in the world does that mean? If you read the pastoral epistles, which is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus, you're gonna see this word godliness or godly a lot. It is a theme that runs out all three of these books that we call the pastoral epistles. We're in 1 Timothy, the first one. It's this idea of godliness, being a godly person. What does godliness mean? To be godly, it means this, that you are obedient to God. That's a godly person. I'm obedient to God. That, that means that um, God's character is on full display in, in, in how you live your life. So it just means being a Christian. I live for Jesus, his character through me, the way I live, the way I behave, the way I think, and the way I say things. It's on full display. I'm fully devoted to God. I am a godly person. That's what that means. Well, what does contentment mean? Contentment really just has this idea of satisfaction or being fulfilled. That, that's content. It also carries with it this idea of peace. Peace in your life in spite of anything that's happening around you. So no matter what's going on, what swirls, what storms are around your life, you have peace. You are a content person. So you are fulfilled, satisfied, you are at peace regardless of what's going on. So you put these two words together that Paul does, um, godliness with contentment, what do you get? You get somebody who is obedient and fully devoted to God, and that brings a peace and satisfaction to your life no matter what's happening around you. Godliness with contentment, and Paul says, you wanna talk about something great? That is something great. That is a great gain in your life right there. Godliness with contentment is the bullseye on the Christian life target. That's what he's saying. Timothy, this is what I want for your life. Godliness with contentment. That's the bullseye of being a Christian. Now, why did Paul decide to write all this? What was his, his main point? Well, you gotta kinda go back and reread chapter four and chapter five because where we've been studying the last few weeks, what, what Paul is doing is he is teaching and detailing Timothy about how to be a good example to the church family, what it means to be a good minister. And what he's doing is he's saying, I want you, Timothy, to set an example for the church of what being godly is like. That's all of chapter four and chapter five. So as you go back and review, and some of this will sound familiar from the sermons we've preached over the last few weeks, but he's like, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. That has nothing to do with being a godly man, but rather train yourself to be godly. Trust in the Lord in all things. That comes out very clear in chapter four and chapter five. And so Timothy tells Paul, or Paul tells Timothy rather, I want you to set a good example when it comes to conduct and love and faith and purity. Devote yourself to the word of God. And I want you to read the word of God publicly and out loud with the whole church. I want you to devote yourself to preaching and teaching. All of these come out. This is what a godly person looks like according to Paul. Care for the widows in the church. That's what godly people do. Raise up godly elders. Hold them accountable, but treat them fair. That came out in chapter five. Teach the church how to live out their faith every single day. Godliness has been found all throughout these chapters. You come back to chapter six, and you look at the very last part of verse two. I'd like to ask you to look there with me. Chapter six, verse two. 
Paul says, Timothy, teach, or these are the things you are to teach and insist on. He's talking about what we've been talking about the couple chapters ago. This is what you teach. And if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And here we are in the last chapter, and it sounds very much like the first chapter. Chapter one started out with calling out false teachers. Chapter six begins by talking about false teachers. There are some who teach things that are wrong. They are conceited. And then, right there in verse five, Paul adds a new detail that we have not yet come across in this book. When talking about false teachers, he says, there are those who are the false teachers. He says, they think. And by saying they think implies that they think incorrectly in the context here. So they think incorrectly that godliness is a means to financial gain. So apparently, so Paul brings up false teaching. Apparently, some of these false teachers, some of them could have been the elders in the church. Some of them could have been these ladies in the church that were turning their worship services into a fashion show. Something about the way they're behaving and what they were teaching was, was turning the gospel, was turning the things of God into a mechanism to make money. And so if you look right back in verse five, he says, there are some who think that godliness Somehow living this godly life is a means to financial gain. And in verse six, Paul's like, Timothy, let me tell you what real gain is. You wanna know about what real profits are? You wanna know what real increases are all about in life? The truth is this, it's godliness with contentment. That is great gain. It's better than money. That, that's basically what Paul's saying. It's better than money. Godliness with contentment is better than money. And in verse seven, he tells him why that is. Let's look at verse seven together. He says, Timothy, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. How many of you had a parent that said something like that to you at some point? Maybe it sounded more like this. I brought you in this world and I can take you out. But Paul, kind of taking on like his fatherly role, he says, listen, here's the reality, Tim. You came into this world with nothing. And whatever you get in this world, none of it's going with you. Then verse eight, he says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Boy, that's a far cry from the bombardment of images we get today, isn't it? Nowhere on this planet outside of the church will you ever hear anything like that. Like Paul says, hey, Timothy, listen, if you got food and clothes, you can learn how to be content with just that. That is not the message you hear from our world. No, 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 we just saw some pictures of what the world says you gotta have. That's what contentment is. No, it's not. You got clothes, you got food. You can be content with that. And then he says in the very next verse, those who want to get rich, now he's referring to those in context 
is these false teachers in the church going back to who, those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's who he's referring to, those who want to get rich. That was their motivation. But it also has a broader application to just about anybody who's like, my main goal in life is to get rich. What I want more than anything else is to have a lot. He's, this is for them. He's talking about them. He says, anybody who wants to get rich, fall into a trap or fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. This is Paul's warning to Timothy. Timothy, this is a crucial moment in your life and you need to watch your heart. That's what he's saying. Timothy, watch your heart because money, possessions, ungodly pursuits, and all of these things, they can absolutely bring you down. This was Paul's warning to Timothy and I certainly do believe this is also Paul's scriptural warning to all of us here at New Life. Be on your guard against the cravings for more money, for more possessions, more things that money can buy, the nicer gadgets, the bigger houses, the better clothes, the more toys. This is, friends, a massive temptation for Christians today. For a lot of the reasons why I mentioned at the beginning, we're bombarded with this idea. You've got to have these things to be content. And that is the exact opposite of what Paul is telling Timothy and the church. It's very similar to what Jesus also said during his earthly ministry. You don't need to turn there. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, um, Jesus said this about the exact same subject. He said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did you catch our Savior's final words here? For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is gonna be. Maybe in plain today's language, Jesus would say it like this, your money is an indicator of your heart. And if your heart is all about money and getting rich and pursuing wealth and getting the things that money can buy, well then, contentment, which in God's economy is where the gains are at, but in contentment, well, that's probably gonna be very elusive for you. Paul knew this so well. He wanted Timothy to know it. And I believe that he wants us here at the New Life family to know it. And wants us to know that godliness with contentment. And that is incredible gain. Now as I read the text today, I see three massive warnings in our text. And we would be wise to pay attention to these warnings. Three massive warnings against materialism, or you could say against the love of money. I'm gonna use those things kind of one in the same, but for, for our sermon today, I'm gonna say materialism. A massive warning against materialism. And the first one is this. If you're taking notes in the app, this is the first fill in the blank. Paul tells us, he lets us know and warns us that materialism is deceptive. And he tells us that back in verse nine, if you wanna look at it again. Verse nine, he talks about those who fall into temptation. 
he calls it a trap due to their pursuit of wealth. So there's these pursuits we go on, and he said, listen, Timothy, it's nothing more than just a trap. You know, it's, it, that's all it is. We, we see the world around us. We see it on social media. We see this extravagance that is bombarded with us every time we have a device on, and we say to ourselves, listen, I want that for me, and I want to pursue that, because until I have that, I am not arrived, and we don't know what contentment looks like, and, and Paul's saying all of this is a great trap. You know, if we knew there was a trap laid in front of us about something else, you know, we, we would avoid it, wouldn't we? We would slow down. So if you knew there was a speed trap along the highway, you would slow down. You would take caution because I don't want to get caught. It's the same kind of idea. He said materialism is like that. It's a trap laid for you to walk right into it and snag you. Materialism, I've heard before, and I love this illustration. I want to share it with you. Somebody said one time, and he said, materialism is like drinking seawater. That's what materialism is like. Seawater has a high concentration of what? Salt, that's right. So the more you drink, what happens? The thirstier you become. You might say, man, I'm just so thirsty. If I could, there's a ton of water. I just want that. I gotta have that. It's so desirable. But you drink it, you get more thirsty. In fact, drinking it will cause you to become quite dehydrated. It will ha- cause you to become hydrated very quickly. And if you continue drinking seawater, you will eventually become unconscious and you will die. Money and possessions, they can have the exact same effect on us. There are some things that they look so desirable. But if we indulge in them in an unhealthy way, they'll kill your soul. So Paul cautions the church, he's cautioning us that listen, um, materialism, this love of money, this desire for things, the pursuit of things that money can buy, is deceptive. He also gives this caution in the text. He says, materialism is dangerous. Materialism is dangerous. Look at verse 10 with me for just a moment. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, this is not new language just in the book of 1 Timothy. In fact, language just like this, very similar to this, is sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. Materialism, love, it leads people into many senseless and harmful desires. Here are some of the deadly fruits of the love of money. Um, selfishness, cheating, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, even murder. If you think about it, the list that I just gave you most of the time has its roots deep down in this love of money. You think about uh, some of the effects of materialism, blackmail, exploitation of the weak, oppression of the poor, immorality, injustice. I think this is what Paul is getting at when he says like the love of money is the breeding ground for thousands of other sins. It all comes back to this in many ways. So not money itself. Money is an inanimate object. It's the love of it. It's this desire for it. Now there's some really famous examples in the Bible of this very thing. If you go back to Judges, or, uh, excuse me, Joshua chapter seven, you're introduced to a guy named Achan. Do you remember him? Those of you that have studied the Old Testament? 
Um, when God delivered Jericho and was the Israelites were going into the promised land, God said, don't take any of the plunder for yourselves. And what did Achan do? He took some, he hid it under his tent. And what did it cost him? His life and the lives of his entire family. I think about King Solomon, the wisest man in the entire Bible outside of Jesus. It's well documented in the Old Testament how the temptation of the love of money and riches and wealth was ultimately leading to his downfall. You know, the New Testament is chock full of these kinds of warnings. Did you realize that Jesus talked more about money and materialism and the pursuit of wealth than any other subject in his preaching? Jesus said to his disciples one time in Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, he said, I truly tell you this, I tell you the truth, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we gotta understand this verse in context as well. It's not right to just pluck that one verse with no context. Do you know why Jesus said that? He said that right after a conversation with a very wealthy person. And imagine this, this is the conversation. Jesus said, I'm inviting you to come follow me. Be one of my disciples. That's what I want you to do. And this guy said, I can't do it. I got too much stuff. And Jesus like, just get rid of that stuff and come follow me. And he's like, no. And the man went away sad. Can you imagine having an invitation by Jesus Christ to come be a follower and you say, no, I can't. I got too much stuff in the way. It happens hundreds of thousands of times every day. So at the end of that conversation, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, guys, I'm telling you the truth. It's, it's hard for somebody who's got a lot to be my disciple. Jesus' point is that money can often be a barrier to walking with God. Really, he's talking about if you can't be sold out for me, if you can't put me number one, follow me without any reservations at all, he says money becomes a huge reservation for people while they can't follow me. That's why Jesus said it's hard for somebody with so much to cast it all off and make me number one. Consider what Jesus said in Luke chapter six, verse 24. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Let me very, be very clear about something. Jesus is not saying that it is wrong or bad for you to have a lot. In fact, nowhere in scripture will you see anywhere where it says it's wrong for somebody to be rich. In fact, you're gonna find lots of examples where God himself made somebody rich. That's not the issue. Jesus' caution here is about perspective. Are you living for the pleasures that this world can give you? And he says, don't do that. That's the wrong way to live. Don't sacrifice the eternal joys of heaven for what you think is the best that this world has to offer. That's Jesus' point. He's like saying, listen, there are some right now who are living it up. And he goes, and they're receiving their reward right now. And there are some that have truly become my followers who are living for the reward to come. And he said, these are not balanced scales. You know, as I was doing research for this message, I came across some 
um, list. I don't remember where I found it exactly, but it was like, uh, it was some top 20 list of the most influential people and with the most followers on Instagram, all right? You can imagine what a list to be on, I guess, if that's your greatest achievement in life. Oh, well, I don't know. But I was looking at a few of their accounts on Instagram and I came across this one guy who was about 30 years old and I'd never heard of him before. He was the son of some billionaire somewhere in the world and, um, and he has millions and millions and millions of Instagram followers. So I started looking at his pictures of what he posts about himself. Have you ever... Have you ever watched something or heard something or was exposed to something and it caused your spirit to hurt? Have you ever had that experience? That happened to me. I'm looking at this guy's Instagram pictures and my heart hurt. This is a man that spends hours a day focused on perfecting the perfect body. He doesn't work, of course, he lives off daddy's money. But anyway, he's like perfecting the perfect body, getting the perfect look, the perfect image. And then he spends the rest of his time um, uh, traveling the world in private jets and luxury cars and, and he's having party after party. I mean, half of his pictures are these big parties with tons of alcohol and other things and on every picture he's got 10 women on each side of him, beautiful women that just follow him around everywhere he goes and the debauchery and the hedonism that he just puts out there for the world to see. It made my heart hurt because so many millions of people in this world look at that and go, man, now that guy has achieved something. How wonderful. That is the best that this world has to offer. Oh, I'd love to have that for 10 minutes of my life. Jesus said, that guy's already got the reward here. And it's nothing compared to what I have for you. It reminded me of Jesus' words when I looked at his pictures. You have already received your comfort. And then I had to go wash my eyes out with soap and have some (laughs) repentance in my heart. Some things you can't unsee. So materialism, it's deceptive, and materialism is dangerous. There's another caution, a really massive one that Paul gives us, point number three, materialism is damning. Forgive me for using such an extreme word, but the text warrants it. Looking back at verse nine, what does Paul say? He says this stuff that he's writing to Timothy about, it plunges people into ruin and destruction. It's a strong language. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. So there's really no other way to understand what Paul is saying other than it's a clear warning that this can potentially ruin you eternally. That's the danger of materialism and the love of money. So Paul says, Timothy, you brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out of it. So my my question for us today is, if materialism is deceptive, if materialism is dangerous, and if materialism can eternally be damning for your soul, and we are to avoid all of that, because that's what Paul told Timothy. He said, man of God, have nothing to do with this stuff. That's what he told him. 
then what should we be embracing instead? If we're to have nothing to do with that, what do we embrace as an alternative? And that comes back to verse six, contentment. Godliness with contentment. Be content in who you are as a child of God and trust him in your provisions and trust him to take care of you. Godliness with contentment. And Paul tells us in other passages of scripture, he goes, I figured out how to do it. In fact, Paul wrote about this all over his writings. And I'll just take you to the most famous one. And we're gonna end with this. It's Philippians chapter four, verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being, what's the word? Content. Because I figured it out. Figured it out. I, I, I learned how to be content in every situation, whether fed, well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Because I figured it out. And here it is, verse 13. I can do all of this through him, Jesus, who gives me the strength. That's the secret. Jesus. Jesus can help me do it. This is usually one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. How many of you ever seen the, the bodybuilder who has a Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. He's gonna help me bench press 400 pounds. I can do all things through Christ. I did it. I'm not offended by it. If that helped you, it has nothing to do with this verse. Doesn't. I appreciate faith on display. This verse is being content if you can't lift 40 pounds. This verse is about being content as a man and woman of God, whether you have a lot or a little. It's about being a godly person who has learned that the real profits and the real gains in life come from walking obediently with Jesus. I can do all of this through Christ who gives me the strength. Godliness with contentment is great gain.